everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Born to Rain. It's good to have you with us. I'm Tim. Jeremiah's on the other line. What's going on, everybody? Well, we missed last week. Had a little bit of a issue nailing down uh, time. Long distance is tricky, isn't it, Jeremiah? Yeah, it's definitely a lot more challenging than I thought it would be, to be honest. <laughs> We're, we're trying to navigate it as best we can, um, but with the Easter weekend and all that, there was just a lot of uh, weirds out of the ordinary schedules. So uh, forgive us for the missed week, but we are back. And following up from Easter weekend, we're going to be talking about resurrection and not the resurrection that you might be thinking of uh, in the gospel accounts that when Jesus arose from the dead, which is what we did celebrate this last Lord's Day on uh, Easter Sunday, um, but we're talking about the resurrection, the the promise of resurrection, that those who are in Christ have the promise of a, a resurrection to an everlasting body. Uh, and some of the, um, what shall we say, controversy, uh, disagreements that arise around that discussion. And particularly, we're looking at uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And I'll just read that real quick, and then we can uh, jump jump right into our, our conversation here this morning. Um, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of those that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had worship, had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. They lived and reigned uh, with Christ a thousand years, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of him and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years." So, and um, so we have we have here one of the uh, trickiest passages uh, in oh, yeah. in scripture. Would you agree with that? <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. So, one one thing that I think we can we can start with uh, in terms of where everyone agrees is that there's a resurrection at the end of history. Um, right. Yeah. The, we, we look at this and go, okay, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And I think that's probably the most straightforward agreed upon, um, at the end of history, um, Christ calls all of the dead righteous and unrighteous out of the grave for judgment. Um, th there's no, there's no question. Uh, the, the big question revolves around this first resurrection. What is this first resurrection uh, talking about? Um, and so I think that's, that's where we can kind of look and, and walk through uh, some of these, the, the main theories, um, and then which ones kind of hold weight, uh, which ones are, uh, can kind of be tossed to the, the circular file, as they call it. Um, <laughs> Jeremiah, is there, what what sticks out to you on this, uh, or even if there's anything else before we before we jump into uh, talking about the first resurrection? Is there anything you, you want to talk about 
just particularly with resurrection in general? Well, I, this is such a complicated topic. <laughs> I think I should be like upfront that I'm not completely a hundred percent convinced on either on, on a, on a certain particular view. I think I could definitely be convinced by a, by somebody on them. But I, th- I think, I think just in, just in terms of Easter and what's going on and all this, I think it's important to focus on resurrection as not just only the future hope of getting a glorified body, which yes, is very important and very cool, but also what that means for us now. And I, I recall the Westminster Lodger catechism. I forget which question, but it says somewhere that our, not only are our souls, our, our spiritual beings united to Christ, but our physical bodies are united to Christ, mm. which, is, which is kind of trippy when you, <laughs> when you think you're like, whoa, seriously? Because we, we just live these Gnostic lives for so long. We hear something like that and we're like, wow, our physical bodies are united to Christ. And that's, that's important, number one, because if you forget that, you get transgenderism, homosexuality, and all this, all this crazy stuff that we have going on. <laughs> Um, but also it, it, it goes down to the very details of your life, such as, um, what, what is it called when you get burned after you die? Uh, cremation, not incarceration, cremate, cremation. Um, it goes down to Christians have never cremated themselves because of the belief that our physical bodies are united to Christ and you should not be burning your bones up. You should be burying them and in in anticipation for the for the resurrection and so it 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 seeps into every part of life so i i also want so the reason i say that is because i think it's important to stress the spiritual and physical aspects of of resurrection and how it seeps into every every aspect of life but well i think this aspect with the first resurrection the, i think the aspect of the 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 final resurrection um that has also seeped in uh, is that the fact that um, passages like this aren't even talked about. They're kind of, oh, this is, revelation is complicated, therefore let's not deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. and, I don't, and I don't uh, think that that's necessarily a, um, I don't think it's malicious in any sense. Uh, you know, it's not like a, oh, this is hard. Let's really work to keep revelation out of, you know, out of our life, um, but uh, we we want to make sure that we're not robbing the Christian of the whole counsel of God. Um, and right. one of the things that happens is that I think in the the state of theology that Ligonier does every year, um, I think one of the statistics that I saw in there, or I can't remember where I read it, but I think it was the state of theology uh, that they pointed out that very very few Christians today recognize that one of their promise the promises of life is that they will receive a resurrected body the mm. the christianity of today has been so watered down that it's been boiled down to when you die you go to heaven and you're with god forever and that's um that's like our view of life after death and yet um so many people have have missed um that there's actually a resurrection of the body. Our creed, the Apostles' Creed, finishes with, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Like this is uh, because, because Christ died and was resurrected, 
I'm united to Christ, like you're talking about. Uh, I'm united to Christ, and therefore my body will be resurrected. I have, uh, I have a hope in that, and that that sheds light on all of your life. That that sheds hope on the way you live your life, and the that you know why why can a Christian not fear death? Well, because uh, we we know that we're not going to be there. The, uh, the grave is a temporary resting place for the people of God. I have no reason to fear the grave. Um, and so when it comes down to that, we shouldn't shy away from this topic of our resurrection. Um, it's great to focus on Christ's resurrection and how amazing that is. Yes, absolutely. Um, if Christ d- didn't resurrect from the dead, then we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Um, we, we affirm that completely, uh, but also don't miss that he resurrected as the first fruits, uh, so that we could follow in his, uh, in his steps that, that he was our first fruits and that by being united with him, we no longer fear death. Death no longer has victory. Death no longer has a sting. Um, we have a hope of a resurrection. So I think, I think that's a helpful way of looking at that. Then when you come to a passage like this, uh, it sheds light, and this is not a uh, any way you look at it. This passage ceases to be a scary passage and becomes a comforting passage. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, first of all, that Ligonier, those Ligonier uh, surveys are really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, yeah, I. There's so much that you said that some of the views will present might disagree with. I don't know, but I think that uh, the 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 aspect of uh, a resurrection life is very important and very edifying. So I think actually, no matter what what anybody believes, this might. I think the application that we're talking about right now will apply to all different views. Like you can't yeah. really get around, you can't get around the implications of the resurrection that. When Jesus rose from the dead, he proved that he cares about the physical world. He cares about your physical body. He cares about the earth. He cares about the trees. He cares about the ocean. He, he really does care about it. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and he came to redeem it. And so that's why I'm joining, joining the Global Warming Coalition. In, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if I was in Denver, I would slap you. But <laughs> <laughs> So, but... I want to talk about, because I think it's a good segue right now, because the the first view, the classical view of, well, it's definitely the classical post-millennial view, I guess you could say right now, yeah, is the view that's presented by J. Marcellus Kick in his book, In Eschatology of Hope, on Revelation 20. And essentially, his view is that the first resurrection is spiritual, meaning that it's referencing salvation. And that then, then the second resurrection is physical, talking about the resurrection on the last day of both the good and the bad for the great white throne judgment. And so I think that's a good segue because one of the reasons I'm attracted to that view, and I definitely lean towards it, is because I think that that view allows for a, for a synergistic view of the physical slash spiritual realities of resurrection to commingle and to seep into your life that i'll admit that that's kind of like a i wouldn't call it emotional but not technically an exegetical well maybe it is exegetical but it's more of like a theological a systematic theological not a biblical theological 
reason for me being attracted to that view. Hmm. But let me just read something from John 5 real quick for those people who are like, whoa, it says resurrection and resurrection. So they have to be the same thing. Well, hold on, because the same person who wrote Revelation wrote the book of John. And in John 5, 24, Jesus references two resurrections. He says in verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into the judgment, but has passed from death into life. So that's okay. And then he says, most assuredly, I say to you that the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. So that's the first resurrection, the word of God resurrecting the dead. And then he carries on. And in the next verse, he says, um, oh boy, where is it? Oh, he says, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming, which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So in John 5, 24 through 30, it seems that Jesus presents to us two different resurrections, one that's spiritual and then the physical one at the end where everybody gets raised to life and it's for judgment. So that's the cross-reference written by the same author. You have two different resurrections. So you import, you interpret Revelation 20 in light of that, and you get the first resurrection, and it says, over such who would partake in the first resurrection, the second death has no power. So that, that talks about the eternal death. So it means eternal life. And what does he say right here? Those who hear, he who believes has eternal life and has passed from death into life. So it seems that the first resurrection is a spiritual one. And then the second one is, as he says in John 5, 28, the physical one. Mm-hmm. So that's the first view. I would say that's the classical post-millennial view on Revelation 20. What do you think about that one, Tim, I, I right think, now? I think, um, yeah, I think there, there's a really strong case for it, specifically because um, John is writing both both passages, where, where if you look, take Revelation um, 20, and then point it back to John, the passage that you just read, uh, it really does show that he is, he's, he's drawing on this idea that we are going from dead in our trespasses and sins into life everlasting, that, that we're given, a, our heart of stone is taken, and we're given a heart of flesh. This is a real um, spiritual resurrection uh, that's going on, and I think it, it makes sense when you look at this passage, um, it's a it's a very simple, um, easy to understand from from the passage. Uh, so it doesn't uh, it doesn't do violence to the text to you know to bend over backwards to pr- to to say that this is a a spiritual and a physical um, in, in this sense because I think it it's pretty obvious here um, if if you take this this approach. You can see it's a kind of a chiastic in nature. There, there's a chiasm to it. Um, so you have first death um, is your physical death. Um, second death is your spiritual death, and your first resurrection is your spiritual resurrection. So it actually follows a, a different order. So it would go your your first uh, the the first resurrection is your spiritual resurrection followed by your first death, which is your physical death. Then your physical resurrection followed by being able to be saved from the second death, which is 
the eternal uh, torment, who, who those who have not found themselves as a part of those who are in the first resurrection, all who are not a part of the first resurrection are condemned to the second death, which is why the text can then say, blessed is he who has part in the first resurrection. It makes it very clear. Um, it, it gives you a very um, optimistic hope for, okay, I've been resurrected to a new spiritual life in Christ, therefore the spiritual death has no power over me. Um, so I, I think it, it holds it holds um, real, really strong um, exegetical um, grounds for, for interpreting the passage this way. Yeah, and I think it's a pretty strong, how it says, blessed and holy is he who partakes in the first resurrection, for over them the second death has no power. It seems like the criteria for the second death having no power over you is for you to have partaken in the first resurrection, which necessitates either one, the view that premillennialists will take, where it says that this is a physical res resurrection at the beginning of the millennium, um, or two, the classical postmillennial position that this speaks of the gospel of spiritual death to life. But it kind of seems like you have to believe that all Christians partake in this either way. I, I don't know. If, I, I bet you anything is a way around that with the other view that we're going to talk about. Uh, but it just kind of bolsters it, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it really helps uh, in that. And I think maybe, maybe it is helpful because um, the predominant view in America today is that this first resurrection is would be the resurrection that, that would happen uh, prior to a um, the rapture that those who are uh, dead in Christ shall uh, rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, but um, so the, the view there is that the, the Christians are raised to life prior to the millennia, um, and the, um, the rest of those people, tribulation saints and... Um, those who were saved during the millennium would be raised to life at the end of the thousand year reign. So that, that predominant view takes all of it very strictly, literally. Um, yet I think it also runs into some, uh, significant issues. I don't like, the premillennial view, because I think when you take other scripture and interpret Revelation 20, which is a very unclear passage, and one of the basic rules of reading scripture is you interpret the unclear passages in light of the clear passages. I think if you interpret Revelation 20 in light of the overwhelming testimony of the apostles that Jesus started reigning at the beginning of the, uh, Jesus started reigning after he ascended into heaven and sat on David's throne. I believe it becomes very clear that Revelation 20, the beginning of the thousand years, started at Jesus's ascension. I also think the thousand, the thousand years is metaphorical for a plethora of time because no times in Scripture is the is the number one thousand used literally. It's always like to a thousand generations. What does that mean? God's grace runs out after a thousand and one generations. No, 
God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean he literally only owns the cattle on a thousand hills? No, it's not literal. It's, it's, it's a plethora of time. It speaks about a large quantity. So Jesus started reigning after he ascended. So therefore I can't think that this first resurrection is uh, future to me. That doesn't necessarily, that, that doesn't necessitate that I think that it's spiritual, but it does, in my opinion, necessitate that it is, has already happened. Right. No matter what view you take. And I think you end up, you end up with problems if you try and, because then you're trying to use this very highly unclear passage to explain away how Christ is not reigning in those other passages that the apostles talk about. Mm. Yeah. So, so when you're using this to say, okay, well, Christ is not reigning yet because the resurrection hasn't happened yet because the the rapture hasn't happened yet. What you know, whatever fill fill in the gap. Um, what what you end up doing is you go okay. So now we're we're reversing our hermeneutic. Our interpretation is being driven by the presupposition that um, this is this has to be a literal and this has to be uh, future. You're automatically right. saying uh, when, when you're pushing this into a framework of this has to be future. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna make the rest of scripture fit the future sense of it. Um, and then I think you do end up doing violence to the text. Um, mm. so, so there, there is a little bit of an issue with, with viewing the first resurrection as a future resurrection, uh, because it, it does cause some, um, hermeneutical issues to bleed into other passages. Uh, so harmonizing all of scripture together, uh, gets you in gets you into a little bit of a trouble right and and i think the number one objection would be well you know it says that those who are resurrected are going to reign with him and tim i don't see you in heaven reigning with them so obviously this isn't real we're supposed to reign with him actually physically on the earth well I, i think again if you interpret scripture in light of scripture if you look at the book of thessalonians what is what does paul say he says, we are seated with him in heavenly places. And he he says that presently. He said that 2,000 years ago in a present tense. So what, what Paul is saying is that if you are a Christian, you are reigning with Jesus Christ. You're seated with him on his heavenly throne. And you are partaking in that reign. And I think this is also a theme throughout Revelation. One of the first things John says is God has made us kings and priests. What do kings do? Kings reign, kings rule. So if all Christians are kings and priests, that means we are reigning with Christ. Mm. So I think that's a theme that's already, that John has been building on and that Paul talks about as well. I think interpreting scripture in light of scripture, yeah, I, I am reigning with Christ right now. Through, through mystically being united with him, I am seated with him in the heavenly places. I am a king, I am a priest. And I am doing these things that Revelation 20 talks about. So I just wanted to say that to kind of answer possibly an objection. Yeah, it's pointing straight to, I think you're alluding here to Ephesians 2, um, which is just such a powerful passage, which I think the whole thing that we're talking about is uh, how do you interpret this passage in the light of the rest of the the scriptures? Um, You have here, in Ephesians 2, it says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. So it doesn't say resurrection, 
but it does use that same imagery of we were dead, we're being made alive. Ephesians leans heavily on that. The Apostle Paul leans heavily on that. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So you have this, um, this is the promise of those who, um, who have received being made alive by Christ. Um, we were resurrected when we were dead in transgressions and being raised with Christ means that I have been seated with Christ. Christ's, uh, when Christ came out of that grave, me, I came out with him. When Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father, I sat down with him. Um, and so, and, and why, I think is the, the real question then that you have to answer. Uh, but Ephesians 2 answers that for us. So that God in Christ, through the coming ages, might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what you end up what you end up with here is God doing a glorious work in resurrecting Christ. When Christ died, he took my sin with him. He took your sin with him. When he came out of the grave, he brought us with him. When he ascended to heaven, he sat at the right hand of God the Father. He ascended, and we are seated with him in heavenly places because we've been made alive in him. But lest we should boast over that, we must remember that this is the gift of God. And it's all, all of this, is to show God's glorious riches, um, his glorious grace um, throughout the ages, so that when we share this testimony that I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places, this is a, a testament of God's grace, and it's not a matter of boasting. It's not a matter of me trying to prove that I'm better uh, than the person that I'm uh, witnessing to, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Ephesians is definitely what I meant to reference. And I mean, I just want to point out the parallel that Ephesians reference, Paul talks about resurrection and then he talks about being seated with Christ. And I think that parallel is striking and very, very obvious. Um, what I would say is that the, the futurist view that this is all future to us kind of, I don't know. I, I mean, I would say kind of, robs you of being able to read those those verses with such excitement <laughs> like being like I'm, I'm a part of this because you, you always look at this stuff and you're like okay hey, future 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 it's not it's not for me i'm not do I, i'm not a part of this like i used to always think growing up a futurist like i, I wish i could be like in the bible <laughs> <laughs> but 
but like when you read this and you understand like, wow, I, I actually am a part of this. Like I have been raised from death to life. I am seated with Christ in heavenly places. I'm a king. I'm a priest. I can do this. Like I'm, I'm united with Jesus through faith. And yeah, I think the application is infinite, but the parallel to John in Revelation and in the gospel of John is uncanny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's the especially when you're looking at the same writer writing the same thing, right? You, like it's it's hard to um, it's hard to avoid something like that. Uh, right, and I think we should just really quick. I just want to address that real quick because a lot of a lot of times people uh, won't necessarily grasp why why we say that. The reason why is because we believe that scripture is God breathed, theonistos. It's it's inspired. the The Holy Spirit doesn't make mistakes, mm-hmm. and so when you find a parallel like that, especially when it was the Holy Spirit guided the the hand of the same author, it is it should be seen as being on purpose because all scripture is inspired and it was on purpose. So although somebody might say, well, you know, Paul didn't know what John was saying or something like that. Well, maybe he didn't, but the Holy Spirit was on both of their pens when they were writing. And that's why it's important to see these parallels and interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, because God is coherent. God is logos. It says the logos became. That's what's, what the word word is in John. So God is coherent. He's given us a text, a, a set, a collection of texts that are coherent with one another. And they're on purpose. And so when you see these parallels, it has to be on purpose. And so, especially when you look at the fact that the gospel of John is the only gospel that doesn't have a, an all of that discourse. It doesn't talk about eschatology at all. Well, that's because John took his all that discourse and turned it into an entire book, the book of revelation. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and that's why I think it's wise to interpret revelation in, in, in light of Matthew 24 and, and other stuff. So yeah, I just wanted to address that real quick. Yeah, and that the book of Revelation shouldn't scare us; that it should give us hope, which I think right. is, is really yeah. what we're that's really what we're driving at. Um, and so, there are a couple of other um, theories to Revelation, which we will get to on the other side of our smart phrases with stupid people. You stupid. They're not. What's nine plus ten? Twenty-one. You stupid. our smart phrases for stupid people as we continue to work through the book of Proverbs. We are on... We're going to finish chapter one today. We're looking at Proverbs chapter one. (laughs) It only took us a few episodes. We're looking at Proverbs chapter one, verses 26 through 33 says, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. 
they despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. So we've got a lot going on here in this little passage. One of the things that I think is, uh, well, first, we got to jump back. The, the person talking here is wisdom from our, from our episode last week when we looked at uh, the, the first half of this uh, wisdom crying out to the simple in the streets, uh, begging them uh, to, to listen to her, to follow her uh, counsel and, and be wise. Um, this is now on the flip side where they fail to, um, they fail to heed counsel and they, they fall by the way. Um, and it's really interesting. Uh, I heard somebody say um, a while back that said, uh, good news comes gradually, bad news comes all at once. <laughs> and so that's I, so true. I, I think that's what you're looking at when, when then you look at a passage like this, when it says, your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you. Uh, is like, okay. You can be stupid. You can be foolish. You can avoid wisdom for a long time. Uh, but there's going to come a point, and you may have thought that you got away with it, but there comes a point where you can't get away with it anymore, and then everything kind of uh, falls apart all at once. Uh, and, you know, where wisdom and faithfulness takes a long time. It's one step after the other. It's faithfulness after faithfulness after faithfulness. Um, it often looks like you're not making progress, uh, but then destruction from mm. foolishness comes very, very quickly, um, mm. which I think is a mercy of God, actually, is the um, yeah. uh, justice and destruction are meant to be swift and painful uh, and difficult so that we get back to the slow and steady pain, uh, uh, painstaking faithfulness. Uh, to, to be saved from it. And so I think that's, that, that bears relation to parenting. You know, why do parents uh, spank their children? A child, can, a, a child can be faithful all the time, uh, and then one, you know, bad meltdown leads to a spanking. It's like, wow. Well, the idea is um, swift, uh, swift consequences to lack of wisdom uh, is the best way for fools to turn back to wisdom because uh, mm. immediately upon the, the fear coming upon them, uh, their first response is to call back to wisdom. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in this, in this passage, the rejection of the call, the rejection of that swift punishment is a part of the punishment. He says, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. So for a father to say, oh, my son will learn, or oh, I'm just going to let him learn on his own. He'll he'll do that. He'll fall and whatever. I'm not talking about like if your son's like walking on something and he's about to trip. Maybe you will have a good laugh if you let him do fall. But I'm talking about like an attitude or a heart problem. That's, that's not the right way to do it. But I think the reason that it seems, especially to evil people, I would say, um, why does it seem like bad news comes so, so 
fast? Well, it's because God gives you over. He says, okay, eat, eat your fruit, have your fancies, do what you want. And then all of a sudden it hits you because you're having this good time in your sin and then you come to ruin. Mm-hmm. But I want to know, I want to point out the rhetoric of this of this passage. Yeah. Do you think it would be okay if you stood up in front of a church and laughed at somebody? <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know, some politician or so, or something. Um, if somebody went in for some sort of surgery that they shouldn't have got, like a sex change or something, and they and they died in it, or if somebody had an abortion and the abortion went wrong, it was botched, and and they died in it. Would you laugh at it? Because this is, this is, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. And this reminds me of Psalm 2 4, where it says, The Lord laughs in derision. It's, it's okay. That's, that's part of our, our toolbox as Christians. You, you can laugh at people. You can, and you should, because it's fun. Laughing is fun. And I think, though, I do, I, I would uh, temper that a little bit with, um, it's not nece- this isn't necessarily a, a making fun of them um, because it, it's you know there's still sin involved and there's still um, calamity and wickedness um, but but the idea there is um, calling out foolishness for what it is um, and and when you're when you're calling out foolishness and saying, "Don't do something stupid. Don't do, don't do something stupid. Don't be foolish. Don't you know? Uh, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't follow the path of sin." And then when that sin comes to fruition, uh, this idea of um, mocking when the the fear cometh is is really a it's it's saying, "I told you so." In the absolute strongest sense, that's like <laughs> y- you have no excuse for saying you didn't know because remember the passage that we looked at last week was um i'm calling out in the streets wisdom is there to be found you shouldn't avoid her she's there when you ignore her you ignore her at your own peril and so her um her response when people fall into calamity is i told you so and and it is um it's it's comedic um the the psalms also talk about (laughs) Um, the the fool who um, the fool who who brandishes his sword. Um, I guess it is Proverbs. Uh, brandishes his own sword and then falls in his own trap. And, and we'll get into those proverbs as we go. But that idea of foolishness is, um, you know, uh, my my nieces and nephews were watching the uh, Apple Dumpling Gang, an old old movie the other day, and the. Um, the bad, the quote-unquote uh, comedic relief, um, bad guys are out there, are trying to steal the gold from the kids, um, uh, Tim Conway and Don Knotts, and they're just a comedy of errors. They can't get anything right. They're, they're trying to steal. They're trying to do, um, they're doing the bad things, um, but they just keep, you know, fumbling over one another they, they just have problem after problem after problem um, and so you can't help but laugh it's like yeah their malicious intent to steal and to do destruction and to cause harm um, flies in its face uh, and when their destruction comes uh, you rejoice you're like yes we win <laughs> this, is, this is great <laughs> and uh, it's funny we, we win it's funny when the bad guys are brought to ruin um, we rejoice it's, it's something that we can rejoice about and we shouldn't be uh, afraid of so in this 
pay attention. And I think the, the last thing I would note here on this is um, uh, that she mocks them because they um, they wanted to they they wanted her after calamity came, but they didn't care about it before. So they want wisdom mm. when it's convenient for them, when uh, life is no longer fun. But that's not when wisdom comes. Wisdom comes mm. when life is hard um, and you continue to work, you continue to walk in faithfulness. And then when really hard times come, you're ready. Uh, and so you shouldn't, you shouldn't be turning to wisdom for convenience, living foolishly all other times. Um, so that's mm. why she mocks and says... Um, they have to eat their own fruit. They they didn't want me when they had the chance. Now they ha now they they've laid their traps. They've they've gone their own way, um, and they need to um, follow follow their own trap. So, mm. well, this has been another episode of smart phrases for stupid people. Now back to our normal episodes. All right. So we lay down the first, um, the first main theory amongst uh, post-millennialists uh, is that the the resurrection is a spirit. The first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. The second resurrection is a physical resurrection. There is a a an interpretation that's gained some traction. Um, in the, the last several years amongst post-millennialists, and we did kind of want to talk about it, particularly because it is uh, gaining quite a bit of traction, um, and not not for um, uh, not for no reason. It's 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 actually got right. um, some solid, um, uh, particularly a solid scholar behind it. Um, it's the it's the view presented by um, Dr. Philip Kaiser. Um, who has an excellent series through Revelation. So even if you get to Revelation 20 and go, okay, um, I'm not sure I agree with you on this one, uh, he recognizes that it's okay for people to disagree with, which is one of the most amazing um, perspectives to have on this. It's like, okay, I recognize right. that my interpretation is a little bit different than, than a lot of people, um, and if you, if, you, if you disagree with it, if you've tested all things, you know, be a Berean, if you disagree, that's fine. But he operates actually mm -hmm. on a very uh, uh, premillennial line of thought that because it's talking about first resurrection, second resurrection, that it necessitates that the two resurrections are of the same nature. That if one is physical, mm -hmm. the other has to be physical. If one is spiritual, they both have to be physical, or they both have to be spiritual. So it can't be. Mm -hmm. uh, one or the other. So um, then he gets into, here's how this unfolds. Where do we get this idea that the, there's uh, two resurrections? Um, and his answer is that the, the first resurrection was a literal resurrection uh, that occurred in the first century uh, during the, um, the Jewish-Roman War in 70 A.D., uh, that at the destruction of the temple, there was a literal, physical resurrection. Are there any, is, is that a, a fair um, blurb summary, Jeremiah, before we start yeah. kind of diving into it a little bit deeper? Yeah, so he, so he 
he thinks that it was a literal physical resurrection in 70 AD. And then you have the millennial reign, which is uh, thousands of years, God's conquering his enemies. And then you have another resurrection at the last day at the end of history. So for anybody who says that he's a full preterist or that anybody holds to his view is a full preterist, that's just, it's so wrong. It's embarrassing when people say it, it's cringy. Um, <laughs> Because it's just not true. Because <laughs> um, he's but, still he's still saying that there is a future. There's a future resurrection still. And right. We're st- we're still looking forward to the final return and judgment, the the final return of Christ, the judgment of, of Christ. Um, and so that, that's that's not full preterism. He he'll still no, yeah. he'll still align uh, with with that. Um, he'll still align. And as with a matter a, of fact, a, par- a partial preterist um, on every pretty much everything else. Yeah, so he's a partial preterist, and as a matter of fact, he, his work on Revelation has brought many people out of, of full preterism because of his, uh, frankly, his rigorous logic in his exegesis on this topic. He's able to engage with full preterists at a high level, and so I think he, sh- he ought to be praised for that. I think that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, so also want to clarify, he does kind of see the... in. Uh, oh, Dr. Kaiser, forgive me if I don't, <laughs> if you're listening, forgive me if I misrepresent, <laughs> but in his, in his sermon, Barley Harvest, I'm pretty sure, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, that he views the first, the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of 70 AD kind of as the same resurrection as in it was one barley harvest. It's referenced in scripture as a barley harvest. And so it's one harvest, but it happens at different times. So there's so Jesus's resurrection was the first fruits of the barley harvest, and the end of the harvest was 70 A.D. That was the that was the the harvest, the resurrection, and Jesus was the first fruits of it. Uh, no, so and not, also not quite so those who rose with him. Yeah. So his, you know? his view is that the um, the first fruits are Christ and those who are resurrected with him on on resurrection morning. That's the first fruits. The barley yeah, harvest is okay. the, the 70 AD resurrection. And then the wheat harvest is the, um, um, the, the resurrection at the end of, end of time. So he, he delineates it, first, isn't the first resurrection. Isn't it? He delineates that the first resurrection isn't the resurrection, isn't the resurrection of Jesus. The, the first fruits of the barley harvest that ends in 70 AD. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's what I was trying to say. I think Jesus is the first fruits of all the resurrection. Though, so so he's kind of the umbrella and those who are resurrected with him um are, are part of that first fruits um re- resurrection. So, yes. But he's got two he's got two Kaiser has two operating assumptions um on this that uh there are two literal resurrections because the word resurrection is nowhere else in scripture used um to to mean a spiritual resurrection though there is death to life language used as we've already discussed um there is uh, the the death to life issue uh is never used using this terminology of an actual resurrection. So he views these as having to be two specific things, and also his view that those who are uh, resurrected in the first resurrection um, are seated with Christ because the thrones are prepared for them, and then they um, uh, sit with Christ 
for a thousand years, and that they have to, those who are resurrected in the first resurrection, must reign with Christ for the entire duration of the thousand years. And so uh, where, where there could be some disagreement with the the spiritual resurrection view that we've already presented, um, his view is that this this solves that problem as well as any problem with um, it being a um, uh, a, a, a false um, you know a, f- a false dichotomy of um, there being two different kinds of resurrection that that they're he mm-hmm. says they're, they're the same kind um, but also we're dealing with a uh, we're dealing with the whole resurrection. So he, he actually solves two problems that the the typical classical postmillennial view um, somewhat apparently has. Though I though I think as we discussed in the the opening, I don't have a a difficulty saying we're seated with Christ, we're reigning with Christ. Christ reigns for a thousand years, and all of his saints are reigning with him for the thousand years. Because the saints were present when he ascended into heaven, there will be saints present on the earth when he returns at the end of history. So the the saints who are resurrected with him, because we were resurrected with him spiritually when he came out of the grave, um, we have no problem saying that we reign with him for a thousand years. So I don't think that that's necessarily a problem, um, but his his view also has a a very solid way of reconciling that issue, which would be a futurist objection too. So you're dealing with uh, two different. He answers two very significant um, objections. Yeah, uh, I think. Okay, so just to get it right, I, I have a quote from him. He says, um, um. Sorry, there there are three periods in history when when groups of people were or will be raised from the dead, A.D. 30, A.D. 70, and the last day of history. But Scripture groups the first two resurrections, A.D. 30 and A.D. 70, into one harvest and treats them as being the century resurrection. So, thus, those who were raised with them in Matthew 28. And the resurrection of 70 AD, he views as one theological resurrection, although split into separate instances. And so I kind of wanted to point that out because if somebody thinks that that's for some reason full preterism, it's kind of absurd because they also believe in the first resurrection. It doesn't really make any sense. But I think he his view does help us with believing or in some in some views, I mean, in some passages, it seems like a resurrection is imminent, like it's about to happen really quick. And his, I think he he really has a good case there with those ones. Um, but I, I think the other point of view would take that as like vindication language. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also would say that the first resurrection in Revelation 20 is limited to those who didn't take the mark of the beast. And since he generally has a more literal hermeneutic, um, he would limit that to, I think, the first century believers who, who uh, he believes were resurrected 70 AD. And he does have some historical sources. Um, I forget the names of the historians, but they saw some, some, uh, some, some weird stuff in there, 70 AD. They saw some. 
there there was a lot of weird stuff going on in 70 AD. And I think when you read first century um first century historians, the there was more going on in the, the Jewish Roman war than just a Jewish Roman war. And when you read secular historian, or I should say secular modern historians, it's very matter of fact on the, the, um, it's very matter of fact on the, the war, but ancient secular historians recognize that there was some weird stuff going on in 70 AD. And so it's the, that there was a there was a real spiritual element to what was going on in particularly in Jerusalem, but Israel as a whole um, during that that first century. So I'm not making any promises, but I would really this is like one of our dreams would be to have Dr. Kaiser on to actually go into depth on this passage uh, and kind of explain some of those things. Um, maybe one day we'll be able to get him on here. Uh, it's far deeper of a subject than we can than we can really delve into uh, in a, a single episode um, because he does have so much um, scripture uh, uh, assembled together um, to, to make this case a very plain case. Um, but that's not to say that it's um, I don't view his view as um, outside of orthodoxy. I think it actually has a very strong exegetical weight to it, and I, I know you agree with that uh, as well, Jeremiah. Um, and then I think on top of that, um, his view helps solve prob- apparent problems uh, that, that many people have, many different views have. So uh, whether you agree with him or not, you know, it's obviously a test all things, um, but but he does do a very um, faithful job. Again, I'd love to have him on. But if you if you are more interested in how he pre- presents this, um, look up. He has two particular sermons. Uh, you can listen to him on uh, sermon audio. Uh, the first is called the barley harvest, um, and then the second is called the two resurrections. Um, and so the, those two are very helpful uh, for clarifying what his view is. You know, it's it's from his own mouth, um, but it's a very it's a very interesting view. I think it's a very um, plausible view, though I would favor the the view that we discussed uh, at the the top of the episode. Would you agree with that that summary, Jeremiah? Yeah, yeah, and I agree. I, I lean towards the first towards the first view, but I but I'm not. I'm not going to write this view off wholesale because it has some really good points and some convincing arguments. And yeah, it would be really awesome to have Dr. Kaiser on to answer questions about the, about this topic. It'd be really fun. So that, that that's a, that, that's a one day goal. We'll, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> but for now, yeah, you guys I, are, I, for now you guys are stuck listening to us summarize it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would recommend reading it on Biblical Blueprints, bbcommentary.com, or is it, no, it's kaisercommentary.com. Yeah, kaisercommentary.com. Yeah, you can read the sermon instead of, because you you can listen to it, and that's cool, but it's, um, you might want to read it so you can, like, actually understand, like, and digest it. Um, I think we left out the idealist point of view, which I'm not completely sure how somebody like Martin Salbretti would view these maybe we can have him on to talk about it as well um but yeah that's i mean can't really 
flesh out this entire topic without spending hours on it. Right. Which we're happy to do, but it's not a yeah. it's not a one episode thing, and we're coming right up against the uh, the hour mark of this podcast, and so um, we will definitely circle back around. But this is kind of our um, post Easter celebration, um, talking about resurrection. Um, it's a it's one of our favorite things to to look at as as in terms of life as a Christian, is that we have a hope beyond this world, uh, beyond this life, that we are resurrected. We have a, we, we're resurrected spiritually, we know that, uh, but we have a promise of a physical resurrection uh, at the end mm. of history, uh, too. Why? Because Jesus did it first. Um, and I think uh, all Christians everywhere throughout the centuries um, have held this as a... Uh, a promise that, and, and when we see the the one of the fundamental views of our Christian faith is that, or the the fundamental creed is that we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Um, it, it's um, it's a huge um, comfort. It's a huge uh, excitement for us to be able to view life as being. Um, Death has no, death has no victory over us. Jeremiah, do you have any mm. thoughts um, as we wrap up here? No, no, no thoughts. Just a uh, exciting topic. Looking forward to diving in, diving into it more. All right. Well, thanks again, Jeremiah. Long distance is tough. You got to get up here soon. Oh, I will. For Grace Agenda, that is. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Well, thank you guys for joining us. You guys got to get up here for Grace Agenda. Um, great conference coming up, too. That's in August. So, But until then, we will catch you guys next time.